This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, biographer Arthur Lubau discusses his new book, Deanne Arbus, Portrait of a Photographer. Then PW correspondent Liz Thompson explains how Brexit will affect publishing. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen BookScan. Want me to take a crack at nonfiction first? Or you how should you do that. Go ahead. All right. So at number six, we have The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech by Kimberly Strassel. Strassel is the Wall Street Journal columnist and member of the newspaper's editorial board. And uh, according to Strassel, the Democratic Party and liberals are increasingly focused on silencing political opposition. We say that often sidetracked by Washington insider fine points, Strassel draws a timely, convincing an alarming picture of liberal governance and a democratic machine that's eager to bully resistant citizens. So this is at number six. And a little further down, I'm just going to jump a little bit. We have another book that is um, is called Fly Over Nation. You can't run a country you've never been to by uh, Dana Loesch, who's a uh, right-wing radio and television host and the author of Hands Off My Gun. According to Loesch, in terms of political affiliation and cultural differences, America comprises two separate nations. That is the liberal elites of the East and West and the conservative quote-unquote flyover nation that encompasses the rest of the continental states. Here, we, he takes an apologetic defense of the middle America and breaks down the current problems of the country which with uh, much flair and sass. So that's at number 22. Just jumping back up, we have starred review at number 8 of White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America by Nancy Eisenberg, who's the uh, who's a professor of history at Louisiana State University. And, and here she, you know, she's basically talking about how class defines how real people live, is what she says. And she opens with this uh, myth-busting origin story, uh, revealing the ways English class divisions were transplanted and, and embraced in the colonies uh, at the expense of the lower classes. So this is a, a pretty big book, you know, nearly 500 pages, looking at uh, at class and, 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 and basically what, what has uh, people have come to call white trash in, in this country. We say Marxist anal- analysis of the the uh, and proletariat, this is not. But Eisenberg's uh, expertise particularly shines in the examinations of early America, and every chapter is riveting. So this has been a, uh, a, a big book uh, on you know, like number eight. It's been getting a lot of attention. So uh, right. then we have at number uh, 21, Dark Knight, a true Batman story by Paul Dini and Eduardo, Eduardo Risi. We said Dini made a mark on the DC universe, writing various Batman projects in print. Uh, one was Mad Love. Uh, but he's distanced himself from a real-life incident in the 1990s that shaped the way he approached stories of good and evil. Uh, while working on the Batman animated series, he was brutally mugged and left with extreme skull damage and an emotional toll that's threatened to take him down. So this is something that he's he's kind of coming to at his, from his own uh, point of view. And we say that the narrative structure, which is psychological action that unfolds through conversations with Batman and various villains, creates a somewhat unavoidable emotional distance with occasional band-aids over the dark void being hinted at. Uh, Russo's art often goes where the narrative hesitates, offering a simple first-hand fable of pushing back the darkness. So the attempt is there. Uh, this is published by DC, but the author doesn't quite follow. The authors don't quite follow through. But but uh, nonetheless, it's number twenty one on a bestseller list, and which is good news for that book. Uh, finally, we have Originals: How Nonconformists Move the World by Adam Grant. Grant, uh, he's a Wharton professor, uh, an author of Give and Take, considers himself a huge fan of innovation. Yet, as he confides in this solid business guide, he passed up the opportunity to invest in eyeglass 
brand Warby Parker in its infancy, which he says is the worst decision he ever made. His approach is mainly descriptive, but does include some concrete steps for would-be innovators to develop their ideas and for business leaders to support them. So that's what we have at number 25. Well, there's not a lot of movement on the fiction list. Um, the top one, two, three, four, all pretty familiar. Um, Stephen King still holding down that top spot very handily. Sold another 22,000 copies this week uh, to bring the year-to-date sales of End of Watch over 145,000 copies. Right. And wow. again, that's just what's tracked by Nielsen Bookscan. Right which doesn't catch everything. So very impressive. Um, but uh, the first debut on the hardcover fiction list is at number five, which is The Pursuit by Janet Ivanovich and uh, Lee Goldberg. And this is the fifth book in their Fox and O'Hare series, um, which is a kind of fun thriller series, uh, lots of suspense and intrigue and darting around all around the world. Um, Fox of the series title is an international con man named Nicholas Fox. Uh, his covert partner is an FBI special agent, Kate O'Hare. So you've got this nice little opposites tracked thing going on, um, or uh, maybe more like the odd couple. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they team up, they both fight and commit crime. Um, and uh, other characters, according to the jacket copy, include an eccentric out-of-work actor, a bandit who does his best work in the sewers, and Kate's dad. Mm. So uh, lots right. of fun there. And uh, also worth noting that um, Lee Goldberg is not the only Goldberg on our bestseller list. Um, <laughs> and uh, down at number 15, um, which was at 10 last week, is The House of Secrets by Brad Meltzer and uh, a different Goldberg, uh, which is Todd Goldberg, uh, Lee Goldberg's brother. So oh, wow. the two of them have plenty to toast oh, this week. Nice. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm sure they'll be very happy to be yeah. hanging out there together. <laughs> right. Uh, moving down the list, uh, quite a bit to the next new book at number 16 on the hardcover fiction list is Vinegar Girl by Ann Tyler. This is a modern retelling, uh, or, or recreation of The Taming of the Shrew by William Shakespeare, uh, and gets transposed uh, to Baltimore's genteel Roland Park neighborhood. Kate is a preschool assistant who takes care of her widowed father and much younger sister. And then her father decides uh, that the way to keep his research assistant from losing his visa is for Kate to marry him. Mm. Um, this is not the only book I've seen recently where, where visa marriages were a, a significant factor in a right. romance plot. And I think that's an, a, a sort of sign of the times. Right. Uh, definitely very interesting uh, little tiny mini trend there. And um, our review says that uh, the tale succeeds as the kind of love story in which the most surprised people are the protagonists, mm-hmm. which could be said of the original as well. But Shakespeare's powerful emotions are absent. It is not the shrew who is tamed, but the tale itself. Mm, interesting. So this one is uh, a little muted, but uh, it's still there on the bestseller list at number 16. Great. And just a couple steps down, number 18 is Born of Legend by Sherilyn Kenyon, the ninth book in her League paranormal thriller series. Um, each book of the series features a romantic pairing, and this one is no exception. Uh, we don't have a review of this, unfortunately, and it's extremely difficult to summarize the backstory. Uh, but this is, uh, I suppose, what could be called a, a cross class uh, or more of a, a Romeo and Juliet romance um, the the last heirs of two families mm-hmm. that have been at war for generations meet and naturally fall in love wow. but uh, I imagine the ending's probably a little happier than Romeo <laughs> and Juliet's <laughs> And uh, further down, number 23, uh, Robert Ludlum's The Bourne Enigma by Eric Van Lusbeder, uh, who's been rewriting the Bourne books or writing new Bourne books with some success for mm-hmm. quite a while. Uh, this is the 13th book in the overall Jason Bourne series, uh, which, of course, made famous by the movies starring Matt Damon. Right. And uh, yeah, this one is, again, we don't have a review, but... Uh, Jason Byrne continues to pull off various interesting spy missions. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in this case, there's a strong Russian connection and Byrne ends up in Cairo at the doorstep of an elusive international arms dealer. So uh, lots of current events, um, also a, a fair amount of Syrian subplot going on there um, for people who want to try and get a sense of what's going on in uh, international war and politics without leaving their armchairs. This sort of series is the way to do it. 
And finally, down at number 25, A Sinful Calling by Kimberla Lawson Roby. Um, and uh, this is the 13th book in the Reverend Curtis Black series, a uh, very long, ongoing saga of uh, family drama. This is, these are basically soap operas uh, in book format. Uh, huge, huge following. Mm. I'm not surprised to see this on the bestseller list. And um, in this installment, uh, the secret son of a reverend decides he's going to start his own church um, basically, so he can make some money off of it, and uh, there's lots of family drama uh, around that, and um, around another estranged sibling who decides to come and join his church, regardless of what the rest of the family thinks oh, about it. So um, that's what we've got on the fiction list. Uh, right. Definitely, this sort of moment of of poise at the top of the precipice before all the the big late summer and early fall books start right. rolling yeah. in. Yep, exactly. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Arthur Lubau tells us about Deanne Arbus's fascinating work and all-too-short life. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Michelle Borba. I'm the author of Unselfie, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Arthur Lubau on the line. His new book is Deanne Arbus, Portrait of a Photographer. Hello, Arthur. So glad you could join us. Uh, thank you, Mark. Glad to be here. And, and thank you for letting me know how to pronounce uh, Deanne Arbus's name. I would have said Diane. <laughs> Uh, yes. Uh, and, you know, during her lifetime, if people did it, I, she, she rarely, if ever, corrected them. Well, that, that was nice <laughs> of her. So, so what first drew you to the subject of Deanne Arbus? It all began back in 2003. Uh, the subject came to me. It was brought to me uh, by Random House. Uh, they were putting out a book called Revelations, and they wanted there to be one magazine piece uh, to accompany, well, to herald both the publication of that book and a big traveling retrospective that was opening that year. And so I did a cover story for the New York Times Magazine. And, you know, I've done many such stories, but this one um, stayed with me. And I, I, I really wanted to uh, dig into it more deeply. And tell us when this was. Uh, September 2003 is when um, I published uh, that magazine piece. So this has been with you a, a long time. What is it about Arbus that, that got your attention and held your attention for so long? She herself, when asked why she photographed certain uh, subjects, would say that she did what gnawed at her. And in, in some ways, Deanne Arbus gnawed at me. Uh, there was something uh, endlessly fascinating. There is something, I think, about her. Uh the longtime director of the photography department at the Museum of Modern Art, John Zarkowski, said to me back in 2003 that people were just as interested in Deanne as she was in them. And it's true. You know, when I've interviewed many people who knew her, and they can talk about her endlessly. So there's something mysteriously fascinating about her, but more objectively, um, I've written a lot of pieces about artists and uh, tried to make what I hope are intelligent connections between their work and their lives uh, that will illuminate um, both. And she, more than any artist that I could think of, uh, expressed a sensibility that was so distinctive that, and, and also seemed so um, connected to who she was and her um, personal and psychological makeup that I just wanted to explore it. And, you know, she, she was very self-aware and also very articulate. So she, unlike most people, could very clearly delineate both her um, what was going on in her photographs and also what was going on in her mind. And that, for a potential biographer, is irresistible. Well, let's let's talk about her. Uh, she was born to an upper-class Jewish family in 1923. Um, so tell us, who was she? That's correct. She uh, she was the middle of three children. Uh, her mother's uh, parents had founded, co-founded, uh, a big New York department store. It no longer exists, but it was called Russick's. And her father uh, was a penniless uh, window dresser at Russick's uh, when he met uh, Deanne's, Deanne's mother. And against 
the mother's name was Gertrude, Gertrude Nemirov, after she married David Nemirov, against over her parents' wishes. But um, since she was about five months pregnant with uh, Diane's older brother, Howard Nemirov, who became a, a, a very well-known poet and, and poet laureate of the United States, uh, the, the parents had no choice. And so... Uh, the second child was Deanne, and um, interestingly, Deanne did the same thing. She also married um, a poor employee of Russick's, Alan Arbus, over her parents' uh, in the end feudal objections. She, she was not pregnant, but she was, uh, despite her rather recessive manner, indomitable uh, when it came to matters of will. She she did what she thought was the right thing to do. So she had this very artistic family, it sounds like. I mean, even, even window dressing is its form of artwork, and then her older brother is a, is a poet. Um, did that, do you think that really helped to shape her from the beginning? Her mother, who was not at all artistic, would say that she didn't know where her children came from. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to know about these things. Uh, her father, who was indeed, uh, in my view, um, a, a frustrated artist, and after he retired from business, he did take up painting. Uh, he wasn't really a good painter, but he was interested in in, in the arts. It's it's very hard to know where people like uh, Diane Arbus come from. Her brother Howard, uh, who was, after all, um, more uh, actually during their lifetimes, he was he was more famous and and certainly more recognized as a writer said that uh in every way she was more original than he and and and, and that's that's correct so i i think uh i think there's no answer to that question i i think that um that her beginnings uh are mysterious but from a very early age she was recognized as being completely original by her teachers by her relatives by her friends so she she exerted this hold on people from a, from a very early age. And, and one of the interesting things I, I found in the biography is that she doesn't change that much in a way. Her, her sensibility and her outlook on things is expressed in, uh, in term papers on, on Shakespeare and Euripides as a, as a high school senior. Mm. Hmm. So let's let's talk a little bit about her art, her vision. We say we gave you a start the book a star review that this is the defining biography of photographer Diane Arbus, whose portraits of twins, circus freaks, and transvestites, among many others, established her as one of the leading artists of the 20th century. Um, so tell us about her subjects. You know she's she's famous, I suppose. Uh, mostly as a, a photographer of sideshow freaks and um, uh, transvestites and other uh, people who, especially back in the 50s and 60s when she was photographing them, were considered to be marginal. Uh, interestingly, most of her pictures are of uh, women and children, so uh, the so-called normal w women and children. But it is true that she, she found subjects that... Uh, they weren't unknown, but she, what, what was highly unusual and, and unprecedented really was that she was able to establish an intimate connection with these people so that instead of looking on them as an outsider might, she entered into this charged collaborative form of portraiture so that those people say, um, uh, uh a man with a sailor's tattoo dressing himself as a woman or uh, a, a, a sideshow dwarf um, are looking at her and therefore, because you're in the place that her camera was, they're looking at you in a way that you're not quite used to being looked at, especially by, by people from whom you might normally avert your eyes. What a lovely image. So this is, um, she really had that very direct connection with them that comes through in the photography, that, that eye contact with the camera. Absolutely. Um, again, uh, to, to mention John, John Zarkowski, because he, he was her most important backer during her lifetime, the, the director of the photography department at the Museum of Modern Art. He said that after Deanne became famous, every week or month, I can't remember, week, I think, some, some photographer would come with, with pictures that formally looked like 
Arbus picture. So that he said that the, the person would be against a wall, the photographer would be using a flash, and they would think that these were somehow Arbus photographs. But in fact, much of what she did, she did before she ever pressed the shutter release. It, much of it had to do with the way they were responding to her. In some cases, she knew people for a decade or even 15 years, the Mexican dwarf she knew for 15 years before she got the photograph that she wanted. Sometimes she only saw people in fleeting encounters, but somehow or other, she was able to establish that kind of connection that manifests itself in the photograph. So how were people able to view her work? Uh, how, did, did, was she making a living? You said she had a backer, one more than others, but how did she make a living? How did she exist, and how did people come into contact with her art? She had a great deal of difficulty making a living. Uh, John Zakowski, the, the backer, was a, a museum curator, but he wasn't really uh, a source of income. And what people forget or don't don't realize is that Back when she was working in the 60s and 70s, well, I'm sorry, in the 50s and 60s, she, she died in 71, uh, there was no art market for photography. Mm. So the only way a photographer could make a living was either through advertising work or fashion work or editorial magazine work. I mean, those are certainly the primary ways that a photographer uh, earned an income. And despite her wealthy upbringing, uh, Deanne didn't have uh, parental, uh, none of the children did. They, they didn't get money from their parents. So, and, and, and their parents, in fairness, were not as wealthy uh, later in life as they had been early on. They, they lost a good deal of money. So she, she was very hard-pressed, actually, to make ends meet, and uh, especially after she and Alan, her husband, separated in 1959 and had separate residences, they were both uh, scrambling to to bring in money and to pay the bills. So tell us a little bit about these central relationships with the men in her life, her husband uh, and also her brother, with whom uh, you detail some fairly incestuous connection. Yes, I'd say the three most important men in her life uh, in order, in, in chronological order, would be Howard Nemirov, her brother, Alan Arbus, the man she married, and Marvin Israel, the artist and art director with whom, who was married, but with whom she had, uh, both a romantic and a, um, professional relationship for, uh, more than a decade. Uh, Howard, yes, she told, uh, Deanne told her psychiatrist, um, at the end of her life, that she had had a lifelong uh, sexual relationship with, with her brother Howard. And in fact, she said that the last time they went to bed together was only a couple of weeks before Deanne's suicide. And Howard, um, well, it's hard, it's hard, um, to say, this, but some people think anyway that that uh, see similarities between Howard and Alan Arbus. They they, they both had a uh, a similar um, almost uh, Talmudic uh, way of looking at things and parsing out details. And um, Alan, who, who Deanne met Alan when she was only thirteen, and decided very soon after that she was going to marry him remained Deanne's greatest protector, I would say, uh, throughout her life. Uh, even after they separated, they were in constant communication. He would give her professional advice because he, he actually was technically a much better uh, photographer than she, you might say. He was much more skilled uh, with, with the camera as, as a technical instrument. And when they began, as they did, right after the Second World War, Alan came back from serving in the, in the military, and they set up a fashion studio together. It was Alan who operated the camera. Deanne was the one who came up with concepts and the one who styled the models. But she, she wasn't using, you know, the large view camera, the kind that people put their heads under a cloth to operate. That, that was Alan's domain. Hmm. And he, he told me, Alan, that, uh, that he thought it was their separation that allowed her to become the, the photographer that she did because he wouldn't have allowed her 
<laughs> to go to the places that she went to, to um, to the the apartments of some some people who were who were scary. I mean, uh, Diane photographed this one very eccentric fellow, and she said that before going to his apartment, she told her daughter Dune, her older daughter, where she was going because he seemed like the sort of person that you read about later in the Daily News that he had murdered somebody. So Alan said that he wouldn't have permitted that, whereas Marvin, the man that she met at the end of 1959, pushed her to go further in that direction because Marvin uh, believed that artists should be uh, uh, pushed, really, uh, to to be as extreme a version of themselves as possible. And the, the problem, or a problem, was that Marvin was already married to an artist, uh, a very talented artist named Margie Israel, Margaret Ponce Israel, who was also psychologically quite fragile. And so he <laughs> was caught between these two very talented but um, emotionally precarious women. And that became uh, actually a, a, a very great problem for Deanne, who was not getting as much attention towards the end of her life from Marvin as, as she, she wished. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Arthur Lubau, the author of Diane Arba's Portrait of a Photographer, um, who's getting very deep into her head. So um, you say that some of this information comes from things she told her psychiatrist. Wouldn't that have been covered under confidentiality? I mean, how, how did all of this information become known to you or to the public? I don't know what the rules are for a psychiatrist after a patient dies. I, I Certainly while Diane was alive, a psychiatrist would not have discussed her. Mm. I think after, this is speculative, but after uh, a psychiatrist patient commits suicide, I can only imagine that the psychiatrist feels um, defensive and, and, uh, and, and obviously wounded mm-hmm. um, and wants to explain that this was perhaps not her fault. Uh, so I think that would be the explanation, but but it's true that she did, the, the psychiatrist who's dead now, um, Helen Boygan, did reveal um, startling facts about, about Arbus's life. And you also, um, you explore her depression in, uh, in your book about Arbus, which um, seems to have really been a defining feature of her life. I would say it was a recurring feature of her life from early on. Uh, and in fact, her two siblings also suffered from depression and their mother had suffered from severe depression. I, Arbus herself was very explicit and articulate about these depressions, uh, about a loss of sense of uh, her sense of self and her sense of reality. And I, I, I quote her because I, I couldn't possibly paraphrase uh, these descriptions with any kind of accuracy. And I also relate those depressions, if you want to call them, or those those um, mental states of emptiness to her work because she said on various occasions and in different ways, that she was unable to experience things directly, that she she experienced them as they were mirrored back to her in the responses of other people. Mm. And it came as a a slow dawning for me that this particular sort of intimate collaborative photography that she invented was a response to that psychological need or, or that hollowness 
that that required filling. She she often talked about being empty and and, and full and. Um, she has this very beautiful way of when she and Alan were in Europe for a, a year on sabbatical, uh, they were isolated because they couldn't speak the languages in the countries that they were there, that they were visiting. And so she speculated that perhaps with no mirrors, uh, she would eventually bump into a wall with nobody watching, say, ouch, and the whole problem would be solved. But unfortunately, that never really happened. She always did require that kind of mirroring from others. Um, I say unfortunately, but but I think that weakness may be, uh, you know, the, the grain of sand in the oyster. It may it may have allowed or or um, occasioned the creation of her art. Uh, so she committed suicide at the age forty eight. What? What was going on uh, up to then? Obviously, she had been seeing her psychiatrist. And um, what was going on in her life, also artistically? She she died at the height of her artistic powers. And many of her greatest photographs were done in the last one or two years of her life, including Jewish Giant with his family, a... Um, the, the Mexican dwarf photograph that I mentioned, and a whole series that she was working on of uh, severely intellectually disabled women in an institution in southern New Jersey mm. that that were pictures unlike anything she had taken before, anything that others had taken before. But she was, she did have um, lots of uh, emotional setbacks. Uh, for one thing, Alan Arbus, uh, who, as she said, she'd been separated from forever, but they, he'd lived in New York and, and, and they were in constant touch. He had wanted always really to be an actor. And with his, the woman who became his second wife, again, who was a good friend of Deanne's and, and, and whom Deanne had known for a long time, they, they moved out to Los Angeles. So Alan was gone. Um, Marvin was, uh, preoccupied with Mar with his wife Margie's own health problems. Uh Deanna had a relapse of hepatitis. She'd had a the first occurrence earlier, but the, the, the relapse was worse. And so it aged her and tired her. Um she'd always been a, a woman who seemed much younger than her years and now she looked gaunt and felt exhausted. And then as we said before, th there were these um relentless money problems she she was um despite uh artistic recognition she wasn't getting paid museums would want her prints but they would pay like $25 for a photograph so it was mm. it was <laughs> in retrospect it's insane because those photographs today can can be auctioned for half a million or in one case the, the the record is seven hundred eighty five thousand dollars. But at that time, which is you know forty five years ago, she was she was asking no more than a hundred or one hundred fifty dollars a print, and and she was often able to get considerably less than that. Mm. So when did her photos have a resurgence in popularity? And it's such a shame that she didn't live to see it. It is, but as she had rather bitterly. Uh, predicted, uh, after her death, her prices would go up and mm -hmm. it happened almost immediately. So that she died in July of 71. In November of 72, the Museum of Modern Art opened a, a posthumous retrospective of her work, which drew lines around the, the block at the museum. It, it was the most popular photography show since, uh, was called the Family of Man show mm -hmm. uh, a quarter of a, a quarter of a century earlier. Also that uh, that year, 1972, uh, Arbus became the first photographer represented in the American Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. She had even before dying been the first photographer to be featured in Art Forum magazine. Um, in fact, on the cover of Art Forum magazine. So not only was she the first photographer, but she was given this uh, premier billing. So. 
you know, the recognition and the rise in prices happened almost immediately. It, it, it is um, sad that that uh, she did not benefit directly from that uh, from that recognition. She she was known and celebrated among people who cared about and knew about photography, but her wider fame uh, came only after her death. I want to go back a little bit about you in the process of writing this. So, so this article came out 12 years ago. Uh, how did you know, or, or were you then approached to, to put it in book form? And how, how was that? Uh, I wasn't approached. It, it, it was really my idea, and it was um, it was done uh, over the objections of the Arbus family. Um, they didn't want any biography. Um, there had been a previous biography which they disliked intensely, but they didn't want another one. And I tried for a while actually to persuade them because they did like or said they liked, and I believe it. Um, the New York Times Magazine piece, but that was um, that that <laughs> that mission on my part was unsuccessful. So, but I thought that the the time to write a biography was now because you know if, if she were alive, uh, Dean Arbus would be ninety three years old, and many of her friends and associates uh, were getting very old. And actually, many of my um, chief sources for this book have died since I spoke to them. And mm. I thought in order to get their testimony, um, I needed to act. So I, I, <laughs> I, I sprung into action. Wow. So your, your first book was The Reporter Who Would Be King, about the turn-of-the-century war correspondent Richard Harding Davis. And um, how is, is there like a connecting thread between these two subjects, something similarly compelling about both of them? I got interested in Davis because I thought that he represented uh, something uh particular to the United States, especially the Northeast and New York and Philadelphia in the 1890s. And I was very interested in the 1890s. It seemed like uh the adolescence of America and that it was a and that in Davis, who was so famous then and so forgotten now, uh I could I could put my finger on on something that was uh particular to that time. I would say that in Arbus, I found someone who, to me, represents New York in the 1960s. It was much closer to me, you know, because I was alive in New York in the 1960s, although I was quite young. But the, the um, so in a sense, I think in Davis, I was rather, um, maybe, maybe, uh, timidly, Staking out territory that was really very far from where I lived, and with Arbus, I ventured into uh, onto ground that was um, much closer and more familiar and um, uh, more uh, personally resonant to me. So, in a, in a sense, I, I view it, I view this book as, uh, I mean, I, I like the previous book, but I, I view this one as a, a, a sign of. Growing maturity on my part that I'm I'm able to uh, address things that are um, uh, closer to where I live. And so, uh, going back to to the Arbus book, uh, did did the family in the end cooperate, or have you uh, heard from them? The family did not cooperate, and. I haven't heard from them directly, mm. so I, I can't really. I, I I shouldn't say I've heard from them. I, yeah. I um, it's it's only been uh, secondhand, and so sure. it's unreliable. So I, I don't know. I mean, they. they um, uh, I I I do think um, that they and the the family really. I mean, it's it's just two daughters now. Uh, um, mm. I I think. Or I've been told that they they have understandably living memories of their mother, and it's hard to see somebody uh, put put on the page. You know uh, what what is a living uh, presence to them? I mean, Arbus herself would refer to to being a kind of butterfly collector when she took her photographs, 
And it's true. You know, you pin somebody down uh, as a biographer or a photographer, and they're they're no longer wriggling. You know, they're they're fixed. So I think for somebody who uh, who knows the subject, that's a difficult that's a difficult uh, thing to deal with. Sure. And how did you balance your continuing magazine writing with working on the book? I did until the last two years, I would say, I, I did a lot of um, magazine writing as well, both to support myself, well, primarily to support myself, but also as a break, because I was I was reporting the book, but not writing it. And then I'd say in the last two years of work, it became too distracting, and I wanted to free up my mind completely uh, to this subject in, in terms of work. So I, I I stopped, and now actually, as soon as uh, I mean the book publication is still, I guess, rolling out, but mm-hmm. but by the end of the summer, I think I will be going back at least for a while to doing uh, magazine pieces. Are there other subjects that are maybe calling you to write in longer form? I would like to do another book. I, I would like to do a book that's not a biography, um, but is located either in an event or in a place that involves a number of different people who could share the stage together. I, I, I just find that... Um, that would be quite different from this, and and um, and it's um, and it would be challenging. It would be challenging just structurally to put a book like that together for me. So I'm thinking about ideas, but I haven't come up with one that uh, that I think would hold my interest as long as this book has. Well, one way or another, we can't wait to see what you come up with next. Thank you. <laughs> me, me too, for that matter. <laughs> We've been talking with Arthur Lubau, and you can find his book, Deanne Arbus, Portrait of a Photographer, in stores right now. Arthur, thank you so much for joining us. This has been wonderful. Thank you very much. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW correspondent Liz Thompson tells us about the publishing consequences of Brexit, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Richard Zacks, the author of Chasing the Last Laugh, and we're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW correspondent Liz Thompson is calling in to tell us how the UK's EU referendum is affecting publishing. Hi, Liz. Hi. Nice to be on the line with you. Yes, Thank you. I'm glad we were able to make this work with the overseas connection. So um, you've just written up a, a piece on this for PW. Give us a sense of um, how people are feeling over there right now uh, with regard to publishing uh, in sort of the aftermath of this referendum uh, and uh, what you think is going to happen next. I voted Remain, which is probably no great surprise to most people listening to this. I know no, none of my friends of my circle voted to leave. Um, and I imagine very, very few people indeed in publishing would have voted to leave because it, we're not, you know, the kind of by definition, publishing is international. We're European. We're kind of worldwide. You know, we, we go to Frank book fairs around the world, whether it's Frankfurt or whatever, and we meet our counterparts. And we, I think we feel part of a, you know, the global village is a cliche, but we do feel connected, I think. So those of us who voted remain, um, and woke up in the morning, or in my case, I'd stayed up all night. <laughs> and then, of course, couldn't sleep because I was so upset. Um, those of us who voted remain are feeling very upset, very bereft. Uh, and by all accounts, and this doesn't apply to publishing this comment, but apparently um, a lot of the people who voted leave are now saying, oh, well, we didn't think we'd actually leave. Um, we didn't really mean it. Right. So, um, that's a bit of a problem because the margin was actually relatively small. It's 1.2 or 3 million or something. Um, and there are various people saying we can, we don't have to, you know, it's not a legally binding vote. Parliament has to vote on it and it will not pass, you know, it will not pass. MPs would overwhelmingly vote it down. Um, as you know, we're also having um, two leadership contests, probably certainly the Tory party, uh, which this vote is now fractured, has, you know, the guns of all guns are blazing. Now we're having a leadership contest. The opposition party looks like it's going to have a leadership contest, too. So we are in a terrible mess. 
And of course, markets hate uncertainty, mm. um, markets anywhere. Um, I imagine inside publishing, you know, ma the major publishing houses, I think a lot of scenarios will be, will be modeled. I suppose some of them will. It's hard to know. The Bank of England got into trouble for when it was discovered they were modeling scenarios, but that seems to me to have been the smart thing to do. What we've learned, I think, is that the government didn't really reckon on going out, so they haven't modeled very much, so we've got no idea what's going to happen. I presume some of the big international conglomerates, perhaps all of them, will have looked at a possible Brexit scenario, um, because I think it means various things. I mean, on its most basic level, as I just said, the markets hate uncertainty. Um, the, the pound has gone down again today against the dollar. I think it rose slightly yesterday for reasons that are not very clear to me and perhaps not to you either, because, you know, who knows how all this works, really. It's very opaque. Uh, it's, yeah, it's all kind of hokum, isn't it? Uh, so, you know, I think, I think British people, um, will be concerned about what it means. You know, I mean, just the people who are readers and book buyers among the public will be concerned, as we all are, about what this means for us. You know, does it mean the cost of our mortgages will go up, the cost of our rents, the cost of our travel, the cost of food and so on, and, and fuel will go up, I'm sure. And that means that, um, uh, you know, a country which has really suffered under austerity for the last uh, six years, and people are feeling feeling the pinch, as we say here. I don't know whether that's an American expression. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they people will be cutting down on discretionary or you know, unnecessary spending. I know we don't like to think of books as unnecessary, mm. um, but if you're short of money, um, they may, may well be. So the kind of, you know, idea that you might go out of a weekend or of an evening and, and buy a few books or as we do in the UK, and I think you don't do quite so much in the States, um, buy them with your supermarket shop. Uh, I think people will be looking at their expenditure for a while. Um, so that'll impact on publishers. Um, I think uh, it would also mean that um, schools who are already suffering budget restraints, um, you know, everything is uncertain. So we're coming to the end of the school year right now. I think we haven't quite broken up in the UK. You may have done in the States. Um, this isn't September, October is not necessarily when people start buying books, but, you know, there will be an impact on what school books will be bought. Um, student, university student, college students obviously buy their own books. Again, uh, of course, we know they rent them and they share them. Um, they'll have much less money to spend. I mean, I think there'll just be a lot of anxiety and there'll be this existential angst um, among all of us because what does, you know, we've been part of the European Union for, for 40 odd years now. Um, you know, most people my age and certainly younger feel very much part of Europe. But what does it mean suddenly to be? to be an island apart. You know, we think of John Donne, no man is an island, you know, for Claude be washed away by the sea. Um, you know, suddenly it's all changed. So, you know, I think this is a kind of existential crisis for us. So that's that's how the public feel. But I think for publishers, uh, there are lots of concerns. Maybe academic publishers will be uh, less affected because in general, I think, and I guess this applies to your academic publishers too, where they're not global, they commission and buy on a world rights basis. And I think the nature of academic publishing means that's likely to continue. But I think our trade publishers, especially where they're part of a larger um, global family, will be very affected because, um, I mean, if you remember, I think was it was about a decade ago when we had skirmishes over basically the single European market. I mean, if we cast our minds back, I think, eight or ten years before the global crash of 2008, American publishers were making what the Brits perceived as a land grab. They were saying that uh, mainland continental Europe should be American territory, that Americans should be able to sell into it at least, uh, i.e. it should be an open market. Uh, and British publishers who need the scale of Europe, we need to be able to sell into Europe to make, because we're such a smaller small country, so much smaller than yours, we need to have the scale of English language books being sold into Europe, and of course that includes Ireland. Mm. Um, I think everyone then came to fairly you know, sensible agreements that um, for the most part um, the single European market dictated anyway that Europe should be the territory into which British publishers alone sold, um, because the problem in Australia, of course, is that the moment we have a parallel import situation where both American and British copies can go in and the book that wins out tends to be the cheapest one. I think after the um, forthcoming election, I think uh, Australia is likely to be an open market, um, which means it'll be, you know, a, a real battle for survival of the fittest. But, it, you know, I think we, 
once once Britain comes out of the European Union, and it's possible that Scotland may become independent, that um, even Wales wants to become independent, apparently. So it would be little England in every sense. Wow. You know, we absolutely, you know, there's no way we'd have Europe. So for trade publishers, uh, this is a very serious situation because, you know, we're so much more of a, we're a small country compared to the States, clearly. That doesn't need to be said. Um, so obviously all the, the scale is much smaller in terms of sales. So a bestseller here is so much smaller than a bestseller in, in the U.S. simply because we're a country of whatever we are, 60 million people and you're whatever you are. So um, British publishers very much need those European sales and indeed Australia and indeed India, uh, which um, American publishers have been eyeing for some time. We need those territories to make the, the UK publishing trade publishing model viable. So I think trade publishers will be probably feeling very nervous. I mean, this is obviously somewhat hypothetical because it is possible um, that Brexit won't happen. I mean, there are people talking about whether we have to pay any attention to what is, you know, um, you know, just has been a sort of public consultation exercise. You know, the referendum isn't legally binding. Mm. It has to be negotiated upon. It has to be voted on in Parliament. So it is possible that Brexit won't happen or that, you know, the form of it in the end will not be entirely radical and we will have more connections than some of the real Brexiteers would like us to have. But I think for the moment, I think British publishers will be feeling very anxious. And of course, so will British booksellers, because, you know, as I said, the public will be cutting their expenditure, I think. And books are already relatively expensive there. Um, I'm never quite sure. I mean, I travel to the States a lot. And I'm never quite sure whether they're relatively expensive. We have fierce cost cutting. It's very difficult for, as it is, um, uh, certainly in New York City, and I'm sure across the States, it's very difficult for independent publishers to survive. Yes. Uh, unless they're really inventive and they're good at doing readings and events and selling coffee and so on. So it's, it's hard. I mean, we've, you know, we've lost a lot of booksellers as have you, I know. So we have one train, Waterstones, one dedicated bookselling chain. And then we have WH Smith, which sells books, but I don't frankly think, think of them as a bookseller. Um, uh, so we have supermarket cost cutting, which is less of an issue for you, I think, because you don't have supermarkets in quite the same way we do, I think, certainly it's, in the cities. Yeah, and we, we used to have like a lot of books sold in drugstores, and that still happens a bit in pharmacies. That's kind of the but, equivalent, I guess. But that's, yeah. that's the equivalent. I guess you and have that's... Costco where lots of people go. So we have supermarkets who – so the books are, high street booksellers are sort of competing with both supermarkets and with Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, it's, of course, it's, as we all know, it's very difficult to compete with Amazon. Um, so it's going to, I think the whole, the whole ecosystem, if you like, of, of the publishing trade in this country is, is going to be imperiled. I think, I mean, it has to be imperiled until we know what happens. Um, and in the short term, as I say, the uncertainty is, is, is very damaging. So that sounds all incredibly gloomy. Are there any, um, rays of hope or, potential well, for good I mean, to come out of this. Brexit may be, I suppose we should talk a bit about copyright actually, shouldn't we? Yes. I also. was just going to ask. Yes. Yes. I mean, the, the other, the other very important aspect of this is, is of course that, um, Europe, European as they now stand and American copyright laws are somewhat different. Certainly the kind of period of after death is, I think it's 70 years for you, is it 50 for us, I believe, but there are lots of other clauses and Britain broadly adheres to, as do all countries, to European copyright, which comes out of Brussels, of course. And there are a few things like harmonization of VAT on e-books, which is a peripheral to copyright, but where we differ somewhat. But copyright comes out of Brussels. The copyright directive in Brussels was due to be revisited, but I think will not be now because there'll be greater priorities. So in the fullness of time, of course, um, Britain will have to recreate its own copyright laws, uh, which we had prior to Europe. Um, I guess we, like you, would adhere to the Berne Convention, but, you know, everything would have to be, we'd have to go back to the drawing board and decide what we wanted. And of course, I think both our nations have had um, people saying that copyright is irrelevant in this digital age, that terrestrial copyright doesn't make sense. So I suppose that's sort of a, an existential threat as well, if we have to go back to the drawing board and start again with copyright. Um, so, the, but that's, that's um, a key thing. And also the other thing in Europe particularly is, 
uh, in Europe as a whole is translation. We have seen in Britain in uh, the last decade, I suppose, um, much greater interest in translated fiction mm -hmm. um, because, of course, we Brits, I suppose, like you Americans, we've always taken the view that uh, we speak English and if you don't understand us, we'll just shout a bit louder. So why should we read your translated fiction? And I know we've read Borges and lots of South American, Latin American fiction. We've not always been very good with European languages. And, of course, we've had Stieg Larsson was one of the great examples in recent years of uh, European fiction that's traveled the world and been incredibly successful. Um, that's a huge book, so that was sort of okay. But a lot of smaller, quieter uh, fiction is translated because it has um, a European translation grant to support its life. Um, you know, there are projects like the Ariane Project, which is designed in part to um, support minority languages in Europe and to help those minority languages and the fiction written in minority languages to uh, reach a wider readership via translation. Now, presumably that can still go on in Brussels, but it's not going to include the UK. So um, while there are a lot of major conglomerate publishers who have um, a line of translated fiction, um, especially with our interest in the sort of Scandi crime, obviously, um, but in the UK, certainly, and I suspect in the States too, a lot of that fiction um, has been published by small independent publishers who are dedicated to the cause of translated fiction. We've had several small specialists in this country who do only translated fiction. I think they must be feeling very cautious about anything they take on. I think they'll be very more than cautious. They'll be very anxious about anything they take on. Um, I'm sure they'll cut back their lists. And, uh, you know, that's going to have a, a great impact, I think, because the translation grants from Europe have enabled lots of authors to make it across borders and for books to be produced at prices that are reasonable because as you know translation uh, is very expensive and if you know if you can't get someone to to have a sniff and read a bit of a novel in dutch or polish or hungarian or whatever it is you know how you know how can you begin to know whether it's worth translating especially if there's no grant at the end of it so that's i think that's a big issue for discussion i don't know on the ground how those actually work but you know i do know that lots of publishers in the uk benefit from those that I would guess is a, is a, going to be a very difficult and angst making time for publishers. So I guess the answer to my question about rays of hope was no. Well, I think the only <laughs> rays of hope I think if you're a British author right now and you're getting royalty checks in dollars or euros, then um, your royalties would translate into more pounds. I mean, I think the dollar today is about one pound. Uh, there was about uh, you a pound today is worth about one dollar thirty-two. I think not so long ago it was one forty-five, one fifty. So that gives you a bit of extra. Um, the euro has also uh, slipped slightly against the pound, but you're still ahead if you're translating a thousand euros. You get more pounds than you did last week. Um, but that's a that's a kind of short-term benefit. Uh, for authors, um, I guess for publishers, I think publishers, when they're buying print and they're buying paper and, and all that, I think they're quite often they're hedging their purchases, aren't they? And using, I guess, using dollars quite a lot. I'm not financial enough to know how that works, but I guess, again, the major publishers, um, and this may cut both ways. Maybe it cuts for Americans as well who are working back the other way. Um, I guess we'll be looking at uh, what currencies they're doing their trading in because that's going to make, as we know, publishers working on tight margins. Um, the exchange rate at the best of times can make a huge difference. And if you've got, a, as is likely to be the case, um, sterling kind of yo-yoing all over the place, that's going to make life quite difficult for lots of people, I think. Well, I hope that um, a few months or a year from now, we can have you back on the show to tell us how everything's sorted out. Um, but for now, thank you so much for this sense of uh, what's what's staring down at us. And uh, Well, thank you so much. I hope it wasn't too gloomy. And I hope everyone meets at Frankfurt and they've got a few um, euros or dollars or whatever to spend on uh, entertaining themselves between all the meetings. I mean, that's the other thing, I suppose. A few, a few people may go to Frankfurt, I guess. Well, I, I think uh, a lot of us are just going to have to wait and see how it shakes out. I think it's a lot of wait and see and crossing fingers and hoping for the best and hoping that there are enough smart people out there who can save us all from uh, disaster. But we'll have to wait and see. Well, thank you, Liz. Great to have you on the show, even if the uh, outlook is not so positive. Nice to be with you and sorry to be Cassandra. <laughs> <laughs> and now a final word from our sponsors. 
Hi, I'm Yaa Jesse, the author of Homegoing, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Daryl McDaniels, also known as DMC of Run DMC, the author of 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every Every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 